there and welcome to the Secrets of Organ Playing podcast. I'm your host, Vidas Pinkavichus. Today's guest is Peter Van Tour, who is a postdoctoral research fellow at the University of Leuven, Belgium. As a scholar in musicology, Peter has specialized in the counterpoint pedagogy and historic improvisation and composition. He studied uh, music pedagogy for five years at Brabant Conservatory in Tilburg, master in musicology at the University of Utrecht, and master in music theory at the Royal College of Music in Stockholm. Peter's PhD dissertation called uh, Counterpoint and Partimento, Methods of Teaching Composition in Late 18th Century Naples, highlights uh, the practical teaching strategies at the Neapolitan conservatories during the late 18th century. In 1995, Peter co-founded the Gotland School of Music Composition, where he has been teaching music theory until 2014. In this conversation, Peter shares his insights about his uh, PhD dissertation, which is now available uh, as a separate publication, uh, where he discusses um, teaching methods uh, of composition, including counterpoint and partimento, in the southern part of Italy. So basically in the school of late 18th century Naples. I hope you will find this conversation inspiring because for people who are interested in historical improvisation, his uh, insights will reveal the historical methods and uh, techniques that could be used even today if you want to learn some polyphonic techniques to improvise on the organ or any keyboard instrument. Let's go to the show. So, Peter... I'm so delighted we're having this conversation uh, that you will be sharing uh, your insights and research about uh, uh, counterpoint and partimento teaching and composition teaching and in late 18th century Naples. That's a very exciting uh, region that uh, not too many people know about, right? Everybody knows about Toscana, about uh, Northern Italy, right? About uh, Renaissance uh, style composition teaching, right? But um, maybe late 18th century is co- kind of uh, a little bit uh, tricky. Yes, we d- we do know about continue Italian continue pr- con- continue practice. Um, Gasparini, right, was one of the treatise our authors, but um, but to teach uh, partimento, which is basically a polyphonic composition, extemporized, uh, improvised, right? That's a very fascinating subject. So, thank you so much for for your generosity, and uh, welcome to the show. Thank you. Uh, yes, I think you're uh, you're right. There has been uh, some neglect for for Italian music theory and uh, and. Uh, both the music and the theoretical issues involved um, for many decades. And uh, um, maybe it is part of the, of the fact that Italy maybe was in the shadow of the German musicology and uh, um, many musicologists have had the opinion that, well, what is there besides Zarlino? <laughs> Uh, is there anything of worth which uh, which um, yeah could could uh, enrich our musical environment today? But you know, I feel uh, Peter. Uh, sorry to interrupt you, of course, but I feel that uh, late 18th century Naples, the uh, basically su- southern Italian school, right? Yeah. Um, this school. It has the key to improvisation, right? Because Zarlino is very, let's say, complex. Complex. It could be well suited for composition, for writing stuff, right? For, for uh, let's say, um, uh, motets, right? And uh, masses, and even keyboard, Richard Cars, right? But for yeah. writing, right? Um, You're right. But for for improvising, you need to start somewhere, you know. 
less polyphonic, let's say. So that's, that's where, where Naples come in. What I mean to say is that this notion is still very new. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, Zalino has been discussed a lot and he has been, I mean, we, we know a lot about it. But this notion about the Neapolitan improvisation culture is only, I mean, it has been discussed for a, for a decade only, mm-hmm. which is a very short time in, in, in musicology. Frankly, what I know about Neapolitan culture is Neapolitan chord, right? You know, Neapolitan six chord. Uh, that's that's the famous uh, second lowered scale degree chord. It always sounds major, e- even though it's major or minor key. But you have to uh, pick a lower scale, second scale degree, and build a major chord out of this, and then play a th- first inversion chord based on this. So in C major it would be D flat major first inversion chord. F A flat D flat. Right? So that's everybody in in academic world knows about Neapolitan, right? Culture. What of course uh, opera. Opera is also very significant. But uh, what you are talking about Partimento, right? And what is it? Uh, can you describe what Partimento is? Well, partimento is, you could compare it with thorough bass, general bass in in, uh, Germany. The difference between and and, um, uh, partimento, and I must say there is no general consensus about um, the definitions of these uh, terms. But as I see it, there is a difference between general bass and Partimento in, in the way that Partimenti were specially designed for mm-hmm. uh, for a number of different uh, uh, functions. It was not only used for um, for uh, improvisation at the keyboard, but it was also used in writing activities. Mm-hmm. So it was it was a multifunctional um, device um, that has its roots in the Italian basso basso seguente. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the basso seguente um, was a, um, you, know, you could call it an organ part where you always play play the lowest sounding part in a in a score. Mm-hmm. So if you have a score and and the bass is silent, then the organist jumps up to the tenor part and and follows the music from from that part since it becomes to be the lowest part. And this tradition of playing basso seguente, which organists did in in in, uh, in the seventeenth century in Italy, became to be used in the conservatories of Naples as an educational device to learn students not only to improvise and to diminish mm-hmm. music, but also to, to learn to compose. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it was, uh, and that is one of the new things that I think I have presented with my doctoral thesis, that the, the, um, the definition of uh, partimento um, must be uh, defined a little bit wider than has been done previously by other scholars. Mm-hmm. So uh, I have discovered that partimenti actually appear in uh, counterpoint notebooks. So they are there in the boss lines of exercises that numerous students have, have uh, realized in their, in their student work. And nobody really ha- have... Uh, um, discovered this relationship between the playing exercises and the, the the reuse of the same material in counterpoint writing. So that is uh, that is um, I think uh, a very important uh, key issue uh, also that defines the difference between partimento and general mass. It's interesting, uh, Peter. Uh, how uh, organists of twenty first century can use this late 18th century technique, the, the centuries-old technique to learn composition and improvisation, especially in polyphonic style today? Yeah. Absolutely. I, th- I think what is so unique about Naples is that 
Um, the Neapolitan conservatories in the late 18th century, about uh, in the 1790s, um, they were in decline, and, and the king of Naples decided that there should be a library. And the library has collected a lot of material which was all around in Naples, and this library still exists. Uh, so there is a rich material of educational um, uh, matters from the whole 18th century collected in the uh, library of the conservation departimenti. We can find solfeggi and uh, many other things that can give us clues and keys to how students improvised and learned to improvise. So there is a methodology of working which is very diff diff difficult to find in, in, in other regions in Europe. So what inspired you, Peter, to, to um, get more research, start, start deeper research on, on late 18th century Naples composition method technique? Well, I, I, am, uh, I am educated as a music theory pedagogue, so I have been teaching a lot of counterpoint, and, and I have uh, for many years realized the problems involved with counterpoint uh, education, that uh, it takes a long time to learn the style, it takes a long time to learn the rules, and yeah, it's a, it's a long way to to become skilled to write a three-part motet in, in Palestrina style or something like that. Because, and I have because every uh, entire year takes just to learn two-part uh, species of counterpoint, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, first species, second, third, fourth, and fifth. Um, that's a general uh, mode of teaching of today, right, in academia. And, and one of the reasons why it has become so difficult for us today is, of course that we, we learn it all through rules and not through playing anymore. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that is, this is the key issue for me to get involved with playing stuff, to, to put pieces in the hands of my students which they can realize in an improvisatory way and in a playful way without thinking of any rules. Mm -hmm. Of course you need rules to correct them and, and you need to explain things, but... You can, you can learn a lot of things by using your, your intuition and your, your musical, um, yeah, your, 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 your feeling for the music directly on the keyboard. So that is what, what is the, the, the reason why I, I think there is so much to, to, to get here in, in Naples. Do you know? Do you think, uh, Peter, that uh, in uh, in 18th century uh, musicians were uh, mostly rooted in practical things, right? They they learned some basic ground rules, but they immediately jumped in and practiced on the on the keyboard, right? Uh, sometimes, yes, they wrote things, but it, it, in order to 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 do some practical work like composition and improvisation, they they just uh, did that for started for starters, yeah. and immediately did some practical work. Do you know, uh, Peter, why uh, this type of method of teaching, teaching changed to what it is now? Just uh, dry rules uh, in writing and even not, not too many people sing those beautiful counterpoints in, in theories classes, right? That would be great, even, even yeah. though... Well, the reason is, uh, is uh, a three-letter word, and, uh, and uh, it is the name of Fuchs. Uh -huh. Fuchs is, uh, is a fantastic book, but it is completely focused on the writing traditions. Although, of course, Fuchs uh, also learned through improvisation and so on. So it, it has been... A, um, yeah, of course you can make a book if you... If you count on that, the music is all around anyway and people will play anyway. So let's make a book in which the rules are practiced. Okay, then you get this Fuchs book and it is, I mean, it survives many centuries. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But the whole improvisatory musical world around this book when it, when it uh, was written has 
gone lost. Mm-hmm. So we need today, if, if we want to learn a form of counterpoint and, uh, and harmony, which, which is, um, I mean, a, a blend of counterpoint and harmony would be perfect to teach today. But then we need to have a combination of, of, uh, of a good system of, of teaching the rules, but also to, to have uh, improvisatory material to put in the hands of our students to make them play and to make them improvise and to make them fancy things so, so they, can, to ca- they can make things up uh, even without uh, a pre-fixed exercise which is being given by the, by, by the master. Mm-hmm. One of my students, you know, uh, showed his harmony exercise. Harmony was g- given a soprano melody and he had to uh, supply three missing lower parts in, in class, you know, in writing. And he did yeah. that and he showed it to me and, uh, and I cl- asked him, have you ever played what you written? Oh no, no, no! It's it's sort of uh, for not forbidden, but it's he is afraid, right? Uh, yeah. And I, I said, try, try, and he played those eight measures and th- said, "Wow, it sounds like real composition! I can't believe I wrote that, you know." And it's so beautiful when you apply those rules. So many people could do some practical application of theoretical rules as well in order to get some beauty out of their yeah. rules yeah. Mm. yeah it would be beneficial to do it the other way around I think to start playing and to start making making music and then to reflect about the rules afterwards mm-hmm. because that's the way we learn to talk I mean that's the natural way of of learning a new language Mm-hmm. True. We imitate other people through practical yeah. applications, right? Yeah. And then only in school uh, learn rules for grammar, right? Yeah. Rules yeah. for composition and other things. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, uh, we've been talking and conversing in our native tongue for, uh, let's say, at least six years, right? Yeah. Yeah. So going back to Naples in the late 18th century, Peter, what happened there? Uh, what did you find out in your research? Well, uh, many things. Um, um, one of the things that I discovered was that um, even in Naples, with these uh, three conservatories there, there were big differences between the different schools of Naples. So there were three conservatories in the late 18th century, uh, and they were called Onofrio, uh, Loreto, and Pietà. Mm-hmm. And, these, and one of these three schools, the Pietà, um, uh, they taught according to Leonardo Leo, which was the big master we, who had been teaching there in, in the early 18th century. And there has been a quarrel about this whole issue uh, yes, I should say also, the other two conservatories, Loreto and Onofrio, they were ruled by Francesco Durand. Mm-hmm. So you have a, a, the school of Durante, which governed two schools, and the school of Le- Leo, which governed one conservatory. And there has been a quarrel about this in musicology, whether there was a, a conflict between the school of Leo and the school of Durante. And people have said, well... We don't have any evidence about this, and it might, might be a kind of uh, mythology which has appeared in, in, in the 19th century to, to, to make the school of Bellini stand out as the better school. Um, and uh, I found evidence that, that these, uh, these differences and these quor- this quarrel between these two schools was was real and that it was all about counterpoint methodology. So the difference between the school of Leo and the school of Durante is that the school of Leo, uh, um, if I put it very briefly, Mm -hmm. um, they taught uh, students to become church musicians and the school of Durante uh, taught the students to become uh, opera composers. Mm -hmm. And uh, the opera composition need a different kind of counterpoint methodology because they were they were supposed to write arias and recitatives and they need to have a, 
uh, a thorough involvement with the text and uh, uh, of a boss. Okay, so you, you always write over. In the school of Leo, it was the opposite. There you had you needed to the, the big goal for counterpoint education was to swiftly be able to to sketch uh, a four part amen for a for a Dixit Dominus. If you have a half an hour, you should be able to write a four part fugue for the end of the of the of the psalm of that and that that was of course very difficult and it was a, a time consuming business to to learn to sketch uh, four part fugues um, it is there but it is much more downplayed the melodic counterpoint is much more existent in the school of Durant. Mm-hmm. so you could say that uh uh, Leo school is more polyphonically uh, inclined, right? And Durante school is more uh, for arias and operatic work. And you see that also from the, the composers that came from the school of Durante. There are many good opera composers which were successful in all over Europe. The school of uh, Leo had, uh, of course, a little bit problems because church music was not as as um, popular as as the opera in the 18th century. So there are fewer composers from the school of Leo that became really uh, European stars, so to speak. Of course, polyphonic music was more popular in the 17th century, right? In the 16th century, of course, with Renaissance, but in the late, especially 18th century, it went out of fashion, right? Um, and and German German music remained more polyphonic than Italian, longer at least, right? Yeah. So interesting. So how uh, how would a um, com- composer like Leo uh, teach um, uh, Partimento in the 18th century, Napoli? Yeah, I think the, the the thing when you study partimento, you should look both at the partimenti, but also at the counterpoint notebooks. Mm-hmm. So the counterpoint notebooks give us information about how lessons were structured, um, and uh, what I have seen by studying these both th- things is that um, the counterpoint notebooks. They they tell us that um, uh, the partimenti were were mixed with with the counterpoint studies. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So the easiest uh, partimenti they were done parallel to to writing studies. So there was a lot of writing being done too. It's not only a practical school, the school of Naples. It's I mean I have found students that wrote more than thousand pages of exercises, mm-hmm. which is a lot. I mean. Only if you think of, about the costs of the paper for these students. It was an enormous uh, effort they did also by writing. So they worked very, very hard. That's for sure. That's, that's true. Uh, would uh, Durante School also write those exercises um, just like Leo School? Absolutely, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. But, but the, the goal was different, right? And the result was different. That's correct. More opera, yeah. opera compositions than church compositions. Uh-huh. Yeah. I see. And you can also see that in the Partimenti. So if you are looking to Neapolitan Partimento style, you can, you can, you can recognize the, the school of Leo because the school of Leo has such Partimenti where you can recognize certain, certain measures that, that are to be played above each other. You see, all of a sudden, aha, measure six uh, can be played above measure one, and measure one can be played under measure six, and uh, and vice versa. That's invertible counterpoint, right? Yeah, always invertible counterpoint uh, stuff uh, in these uh, Leo Leo style partimenti. Oh, that's very clever. Yeah, Mm. and... uh, 
people have not really realized this because you you don't get any textual information so it's only if you have if you have schooled your eyes to see it you can see it but if you if you don't know it you don't you don't recognize it mm-hmm. It's just like Johann Sebastian Bach, he was copying uh, fugues by Corelli and Albinoni and others, um, and, uh, and uh, fugues by Reinken, who also was influenced by Italians, right? And uh, he, he would think later in his organ compositions and uh, keyboard compositions, just like this, uh, you could uh, play soprano, and uh, lower part, let's say alto, and then invert them, right? In in octave, right? Soprano uh, drops one octave lower, and alto stays the same. So uh, soprano in reality becomes a tenor part, uh, and and then and you have those permutations. It's called permutation fugue, right? All over the place. You can even have two s- counter subjects, three parts uh, in combinations. Uh, 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 basically permutating with one another throughout the piece, just like in Pasakalia in C minor, uh, we have this system. D- do Italian, uh, the Naples school also uses a similar permutation techniques? Do you think? Well, the the, the general the general way of doing is 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 um, the fugue is different from the German fugue because. Uh, often you have a very early entrance of the of the counter subject, so you have a subject and a counter subject at the same time, and the counter subject is often called soggetto servile, so the the helping mm-hmm. subject. So if you listen to Neapolitan fugues, you you hardly hear long solo themes. You, almost always you hear two voices starting. Mm-hmm. So the theme and, and the helping theme start together, and that's what, of course, there, there is a reason for this because the, the whole goal for the for the player is to memorize the theme and the helping theme, mm-hmm. and to more easily be able to improvise the stuff. Mm-hmm. Because uh, I think, in many cases, a master could give a theme and a helping theme to the student. And they just, they just play. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, so, so it's a matter of uh, of of creating the the fugue on the spot with only that material. Mm-hmm. So you have basically, in modern terms, a subject and counter subject. Yes, the soggetto servile, as you say, and then uh, you invert them uh, as you want. You keep the the tonal plan in mind what com- uh, what comes next right tonic dominant tonic dominant and then maybe dominant tonic dominant tonic and that's that's the plan for uh, for exposition and counter exposition and, and there, uh, is one, there is one other thing too which should be mentioned mm-hmm. that uh, uh, because of this partimento uh, notation of this way of sketching um, the Neapolitan fugues often have uh, di- diagonal voice entries, starting with the, the highest voices and then going down. So the entrance soprano, alto, tenor, bass is much more common than bass, tenor, alto, soprano. Mm-hmm. And the, re- the reason for this is obvious, because if you try to notate the upgoing diagonal, in partimento style, you get big problems. But if you do it the other way around, if you start with the soprano, mm-hmm. and then you take the alto, then you can start, continue to write the soprano above. And as soon as you you jump to the tenor, tenor clef, then you can start to write uh, thoroughbass figures, mm-hmm. which take over the lines which you have started earlier. So for partimento notation, the downward directing uh, diagonal voice entries is much more uh, suitable um, and that you hear in many, many uh, Neapolitan fugues, this uh, downward. You mentioned, Peter, um, different clefts. So in 18th century, people and students had to really get more familiarity with soprano, alto, and tenor clefs beside, beside yeah. the treble and the bass clefs, right? Yeah. 
So, uh, so when you have those uh, uh, sketches, let's say sketches for fugue, right? That's what partimento is. You have one line, but you start the notation not with the bass clef, but with soprano clef because it is uh, the upper vo- voice, right? And then after a few measures, alto comes in and then tenor. If you have a partimento fugue, it's almost always soprano clef, mm-hmm. then alto clef, then tenor clef, then bass clef. Mm-hmm. And the clef changes are necessary uh, because they signal the entry of a new voice. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's very difficult to, to transcribe these pieces into G clef and F clef because you lose the information which was essential for telling the student, look, here we start with a new theme in the tenor. <laughs> So you need these signals. Right, right, right. Um, do you have... Uh, have, you, have you met students who are afraid of different clefs and only want to play in tr- uh, treble clef and the bass clef? Yeah, well, this is a matter of, uh, of, uh, of, of pedagogy. I mean, a clef is, is not a big thing. You can learn a new clef in 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 half a month or a month and it is it is like a key that gives you gives you entrance to a new building mm-hmm. i think one of the most uh, astonishing things in modern modern musical education is that people don't put too much time in in learning new clefs mm-hmm. it's very very wise and rewarding to put some time in learning new clefs because it opens up your world enormously. So uh, that is maybe if you should give one advice to young students in music, it would be learn all the clefs because you can read so much more and it doesn't take too much time. So there are basically three types of clefs, right? Uh, G clef, F clef and C clefs, right? G clef is one of them is very familiar like like treble clef, yeah. but the second one is less so, right? The 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 French clef uh, which uh, is written on the first line not yeah. on the second right and the g note of treble g is on the first line which is kind of one one um, uh, third uh, uh, higher than the normal it's it's a higher t- clef right um, so uh, then we have uh, f clefs uh, three different types of f clefs right uh, that famous um, bass clef which is uh, on the f- fourth line then what we yeah. have uh, a baritone clef on the middle line right and yeah. then if you write f this f clef on the fifth line you get what basso fro- profondo the very low uh, f uh, yeah. which indicates that on that line you have you have tenor f right and you can still go below that for entire octave or lower, right? That's a very low clef. And then five types, of course, of C clefs, because you can write on every single line this uh, C note, and I- it would be indicated that the middle C, the, yes, a middle C would be on the first line, second line, third line, and so forth. Soprano, mezzo-soprano, alto, tenor, and the the last one is what? Baritone. No, 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 not baritone. Uh, remind me, what is the C on the fifth clef? Probably on the C would, on the fifth would be uh, lower than the tenor, right? Yes, baritone. If I may put them in the, in the order in which I think young students should learn them, the G clef should be done first. Mm-hmm. And the F clef, then the C3 clef, so the alto clef. After that, the, uh, the tenor clef. Mm-hmm. And after that, the C1 clef. The tenor clef is the C4 clef. And after that, the C1 clef. With these clefs, you can read almost everything. The other clefs, I neglect a little bit, the, the French clefs, because it's such, I mean... In Naples, you never use uh, the 
the French violin clef, for example. It's only in, in certain regions in Europe where, where these clefs are, are are common. So, with the with this set of of um, of clefs, you can do almost everything. You can read all the scores. You can read the 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 fagot, uh, fagotto in, in the in the in orchestral scores and everything. Mm-hmm. So, so it's very very wise to learn different clefs. Another benefit that you, a student has in learning, right, different clefs, is in improvising fugues, you can just change the clef in your mind and you will transpose the the subject into a different key, right? It's yeah. one of the methods of transposition, basically changing the clef, simply. Yeah, well, you need to learn to to read, The claps, but you also need to write mm-hmm, mm-hmm. every clap. Mm-hmm. So it's reading and writing. So, Peter, uh, of course, in your research, you probably came across with different uh, previous findings of other scholars, uh, such as Langlot's manuscript, right? And yeah. that's a G- German source for learning Partimento, more of a, like... Uh, um, Buxtehude type fugues, right? Uh, Fast-moving instrumental fugues. Uh, uh, what uh, are they? F- have many things in common with the Italian school, especially Naples school, or they are completely different? Well, there there are differences because you, you can re- you can see that these are not Neapolitan fugues, mm-hmm. but. Um, I think there is a common root for this tradition and. Uh, It's obvious that the, the south of Germany, the, 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 in the late 17th century, uh, was very much influenced by the traditions in Rome and in Naples uh, because of the, the, the Catholic Church uh, influence, of course. And uh, organists were trained to improvise versetti for the liturgy. And uh, these uh, versetti improvisations were a kind of methodol- methodological basis for learning to improvise the fugues. Mm-hmm. And fugues were also used in, in, in service. Mm-hmm. So um, there is, of course, a, a, a general tradition that connects these two countries, even though people have started to apply it differently and, uh, and so on. So... There are both uh, similarities and differences. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I would suspect that Leo school would, would uh, uh, find uh, the type of um, German uh, partimento style more applicable, right? Because of the church. Uh, they also had to uh, improvise Versetti in Italian uh, liturgy, right? So, But yeah. what is Versetti other than, that, than the short fuget or, or a, mm, let's say, Fugue with just the um, the the basic uh, outline for entering exposition and counter exposition, perhaps right. One page uh, uh, small polyphonic piece, uh, soprano, alto, tenor, bass, bass, uh, and then soprano, alto, tenor, bass, but in different order, right? Tonic, dominant, tonic, dominant, and then again dominant, tonic, dominant. Yeah. Tonic. That would be a basic versetti. And if you have, let's say, a, a collection of psalm tones, right, uh, or a hymn that you have to play in alternation, you can change the meters, right? You can change the, the rhythms of that subject, and you would have like four or eight uh, even uh, versetti based on the same key, on the same subject. That's what probably every Italian organist uh, would do, right? Every, every Catholic organist back in the day would do. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. absolutely. And that was a, a standard uh, thing for, for, for in education too. You, you see that in also in the Partimento, in the Partimenti of the early 18th century in Naples, you find many what I call versetto Partimenti. Mm-hmm. Um, they are very short and um, they only play the lowest part in And uh, the rest is is um, added uh, by realizing it on uh, on the keyboard with Thorovas figures. Mm-hmm. 
and even Handel uh, uh, used his uh, polyphonic skills in his uh, uh, continual teaching, right? And uh, Partimento technique is really appears at the end of his con uh, continual treatise too, a few exercises, right? Uh, maybe slower than than. Uh, Langlot's manuscript would uh, would uh, suggest uh, not instrumental but maybe vocal type of yeah. uh, counterpoint, but still it is a polyphonic composition. Yeah. Mm. You see, in Handel, uh, I, he was uh, for a long time in in Italy and and learned a lot of things in Italy, and so I think there is a uh, um, a great influence from Italian. Um, Partimento style, which which has influenced uh, Handel's uh, uh, skills in in writing vocal fugues, for example, mm -hmm. that is a very much uh, Italian tradition. I'm, I mean, we know Handel as as the, the big expert of the vocal fugue, mm -hmm. and uh, that is no no surprise given the fact that he was uh, yeah he was a lot in Rome and in Naples and and learned these things. There. Do you think, uh, Peter, that uh, in 21st century uh, people are starting to realize the importance of inclusion of partimento technique in, in teaching uh, counterpoint and, uh, and uh, improvisation today? Definitely. I, 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 I get almost uh, every week I get some mail from a distant in the world where people have uh, started to realize that the 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 thorough uh, the 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 dry exercises that is being done in with these old german textbooks it just doesn't work anymore with many modern students that have been learned through youtube and so on it's a, it's a different time we need to we need to have uh, methods which are which are um, which involve the the our abilities to imitate and to be be playful on the keyboard mm -hmm. so that there is a new era of music theory coming that's that's absolutely sure mm -hmm. you're probably yeah. referring to the uh, uh treatise by Marburg, right? Abhandlung von der, von der Fuge, uh, where he analyzes many Bach's works, right? Because Bach yeah. never wrote uh, sort, sort of polyphonic treatise, uh, except he created, uh, like, Art yeah. of Fugue, right? And uh, yeah. Well-Tempered Clavier. And uh, other, other works, too, polyphonically very advanced. So Mark yeah. Marburg would analyze those and make a treatise for 18th century students in order to imitate and uh, uh, sort of continue the Bach tradition, but it is very uh, theoretical approach, right? Today, if if you look at it with fresh eyes, it's very yeah, very well, difficult. That that is the paradox of this whole issue. We often have a tendency to to be attracted by the books. Mm -hmm. We we look at the books. This book is print, this printed book and that printed book. But if you look at the Neapolitan traditions. They hardly printed any books. They had almost no printing firms. They wrote everything by hand and they learned from the master to the student. That's why we have forgotten about it. But the real value of, of, of my research, I think, is that to, to recover these handwritten stuff, which are, uh, which are um, telling us about the improvisatory ways of dealing with fugues and dealing with with uh, counterpoint, instead of the the written textbooks and the printed textbooks from the German tradition. Mm -hmm. So I think the value of this handwritten stuff has not been fully realized yet. Mm -hmm. yeah. And uh, what? What the end result for the today's students would be if one would be, uh, you know, inclined to take a peep and, uh, and really uh, try to learn Partimento of Italian school? Uh, what would you uh, envision uh, as a goal for that student? What he would or she would do afterwards? What maybe improvise, forgets, obviously, right? What else? Well, the, the goal, I would say, is to become 
such a musician that you have a control over the composition yourself as a musician okay the musician should not all, all only be a musician but also an educated composer okay so if you are playing a mozart piano concerto you should have you should have so much confidence that you can you can do something with it which is which is tasteful and in style um, without offending Mozart of course but you should be able to to do something with the music as they did in in those times everybody had the ability in those days to get into the score and to to make changes and to feel free the the score was only a framework to make music okay and and we have had so much respect for for these uh, so-called genius composers. I mean, we call them geni genius. And that's a tradition that we maybe have to re-evaluate. There, there is a great benefit of thinking of the, of the, the handwork and, the, and the, the, the craft of the musician to become not only skillful in playing, but also to become knowledgeable as a composer at the same time. And that that combination is uh, is I think very good for today's musicians to yeah. I like how you described uh, Peter uh, uh, that the score was just a framework, a sketch basically to expand right uh, in style, yeah. uh, not to offend, yeah. not to abuse, but to to use creative forces to to make more embellishments right on the repeats if it's a binary form right it's it's very self explanatory but of course this was a this was a gradual process mm -hmm. so we in the renaissance you can really talk about the framework in the late 19th century it is very much fixed and and it has been a gradual process towards that but today we really need to to uh, in order to make uh, music theory more more fun mm -hmm. uh, i think we need to um to rediscover the the joy of making music without all these rules and without all these uh, thick uh, textbooks we don't need them so much as we've done before mm -hmm. we can play a lot and we can have a lot of fun and 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 become very good, uh, good. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. And lots of composers loved this freedom in the early ages, right? But then Beethoven showed up, showed up, and said, "No, no, no, no! You should perform it exactly as written, right?" Because yeah, he was yeah. angry with perhaps um, a less less stylistically appropriate yeah. interpretations of his day, right? And he fixed yeah. everything. So yeah. then everybody adored Beethoven. Oh yes, master. And started to 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 look at the score as a holy Bible, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, Peter, uh, thank you so much for your time and insights today. I hope people uh, will uh, understand and feel inspired to 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 really take a look at what uh, what can be done with with this kind of uh, continuum partimento, especially counterpoint teaching and learning, and how it can serve the needs of today's uh, organist and practical musician right not only you will be able to create uh, small fugues on the spot but you will learn to probably look at existing compositions very strategically and you will know right away what's on the page right uh, how uh, what was the process that composer uh, uh, went through in composing a let's say Pasacalia or Chacona or or a, a fugue especially right so that's yeah. another benefit that we should mention right so and thanks our, so much for our listeners in in the Netherlands and in Belgium I can tell that I'm uh, tomorrow I am moving for a three-year period to Belgium mm -hmm. where I will start a new um, um, a research project at the University of uh, Leuven and that will be focused on the the um, uh, fugal improvisation in Germany and in Italy. Uh, 
between 1670 and 1750. Oh, that's that's a, an earlier period, period right? You you research end of the 18th century, and now you're going back in time. I'm going back. Right. That's right. Right. So that would be your future research, right? Very interesting that's to right. find out yeah. more when you have some new insights to yeah. to share. So thank you so much, Peter, again. And uh, where our listeners can find more about you, your work, and Partimentos. Well, um, I my thesis can be found uh, easiest is perhaps to search to Google me mm-hmm. with the word UU part. UU is uh, abbreviation for uh, Uppsala University, which is my my alma mater, uh, and uh, part is a abbre- abbreviation for Partimento. So UU part as one word. If you Google that, you will find my my Partimento database, and from that you can find my thesis and uh, also you can contact me if, uh, if you want. Mm-hmm. And um, is there any, anything else you want to mention or visit uh, our listeners to visit online after this conversation? Your, your maybe research uh, of projects that you're doing? Anything else? Yeah, well... Um, much of the things I have published uh, are, is available on Academia, mm-hmm. the, the research uh, uh, network. So if you Google me on Academia, you will find me, Peter Van Tour. Peter Van Tour in Academia. Great. Yeah. I'll make sure I will include those links into the description of this conversation so that mm-hmm. people can physically click on the link uh, and go to directly. Mm-hmm. Great. Um, thank you so much, Peter. Good luck in your thank research. You. And I'm very eager to find out more about uh, 17th century ah. and uh, be beginning of 18th century counterpoint teaching that you will be researching later on. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Let's keep in touch. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. If you liked this conversation, I encourage you to visit my blog Secrets of Organ Playing at organduo.lt where you will find lots of insights, practical advice and training for every area of organ playing. You can subscribe to this blog for free to get your daily dose of inspiration and to be the first to know when any of my future podcasts roll out. I hope to help you reach your dreams in organ playing. I'm Vidas Pinkavichus. Thanks for listening, and I'll catch you online really soon.